when you've experienced, when you've seen what it is to live in misery, poor, when you got to walk 20 minutes to fill up a bucket of water to bring it from a well, to bring it to your family. Do you think when you come to New York City, it's hard? That's not. My name is Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview-style podcast where each week I sit down with some of the most influential and interesting people involved in the game. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Baki Samare, who at a very young age came as an illegal immigrant to New York City from a small village in Mali. He takes us through his amazing journey from the start in the Bronx, working at Domino's, delivering pizza at age 15, to becoming a professional player and playing in the MLS, League One in France and Germany, as well as the Mali national team. It is an incredible story, and I'm pretty sure that you'll enjoy this one. So without further ado, let's roll the tape. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, I'm honored and I'm very excited to learn about your journey. So welcome to Coffee and Football. Thanks for having me. So my first question typically is, since the theme of this is Coffee and Football, do you drink coffee? And if so, how do you typically drink it? I drink it not from Starbucks to begin with. Uh, I love coffee and I like a, uh, a macchiato, which is usually uh, espresso with very little milk and then throughout the day, depending on how much work I have. I range from four to five espressos. What's your go-to spot? Early morning, usually I go to, I go to uh, Joe's and Weberly. And when I have a lot of work to do, when I want to be in a more confined space and darker, I go to uh, Grand Central, which is on 52nd Street. It's darker, it has a, has a library in the back, a lot of books. It's a great place to get work done. How you doing today? How's, how's life going? Today, good, better. What does that mean? So some days are, are better than other? Yeah, I'm up and down with health. You know, there's some days where, like today, I'm feeling good. You remember the day we're supposed to record this? Woke up with a migraine. So it really depends on, you know, you just go to sleep and you hope the next morning you feel good. You know, but today I feel really good. And is that mainly for some of the concussion symptoms that you have from your playing days? Or is that something that you've had? It's hard to really figure out, you know, what causes it, you know, now, obviously, I have a lot of, you know, post-concussion symptoms, but in terms of headaches and migraines, I've dealt with those since my youth, so it's not necessarily, you know, connected to my concussions. It could be neurological conditions I've had since I was a kid. So now you're uh, recently retired. It's been uh, not even a year uh, after a very long playing career, after living a certain way with certain routines for, for many years. What's the feeling of of not having the game in your life the same way it used to? Uh, I tell you what, I love it. I uh, The past few months, besides health issues and some legal issues, have been the best, literally it's been the best time of my life in terms of on a personal level, uh, neurological level. It's been, it's been great. It's been great having the ability to wake up in the morning and do the things I want to do being on my own schedule, making decisions for myself, being able to 
do the things I want to do in an everyday setting. For me, as, as with my personality and my the way I operate, it's, it's very, very important, and it's it's been fantastic. Was that something while you were playing? Did you have any of these thoughts of, "Hey, I can't wait until the day that I don't have these routines to to stick to," or was it something that came after you were kind of done? You know, it's it, it's a tough one because I um, I played soccer because I love this sport. I love playing football, and I made a career out of it based on the fact that I loved it that much based on the fact that it got me out of uh, my country and it allowed me to get through a lot of obstacles in life. A lot of my neurological issues got better over the years because of football. And I love the sport, not necessarily because of football as a sport, but for what it did for me. And it was almost, believe it or not, it was like soccer had become my medicine. It helped me overcome some obstacles and over the years I uh, it allowed me to to fight some of the, the Asperger's tendencies that I had as a kid and it got better and better and better so it was it was really it was my medicine and uh, but that came with the challenges of the the business aspect and when you say when you refer to neuro- neurologically in this case is that connected to to the Asperger's yeah, I uh, as a kid, I uh, I was born with uh, neurological issues, where uh, neural issues. I don't know if you want to call that, but with what people would refer to as deficiencies or disease or neurological issues. As I'm not neurotypical in a lot of ways, but as a kid, being Mali and then living in France for a little bit in the banlieues, as you said it well earlier, when your kid has neurological issues and you take him to the doctor. Sometimes they don't know how to diagnose it. You know, when a parent comes, brings his kid, say, hey, listen, my kid has tantrums. My kid's has a delay in speech. He has obsessive, uh, obsessive, uh, behaviors. He has no interest in certain things. Then it could go either way. You can, your parents take you to the right doctor, then they can, they can pinpoint what is that, that the kid has. Had I been in New York at the time, maybe somebody would have said, you know what, it's a form of autism, it's a high efficient. But I was in Mali and French, back and forth with my dad and my biological father, and they diagnosed me with uh, five years old. I was on heavy, heavy medicine called Depakote. I took that for almost 15 years, man. So I took Depakote, and at the time they thought I had epilepsy because just because you have seizures doesn't mean you have it. When you have epilepsy, you have seizures. But when you have seizures, doesn't necessarily have epilepsy. Because why the count? That's what happened to me. A few years later, my early, you know, 10, 11 years old, I was now diagnosed with a doctor said, well, maybe it's not epilepsy. Maybe it's bipolar disorder. And that quickly got re-diagnosed by a different doctor who said, no, it's it's." it's either epilepsy or it's a form of autism but I stayed on the same medicine so it's been a um, but eventually when I moved here I just took the medicine for a little bit and then I stopped taking it but we can go back to that but yeah we'll definitely get back to that I mean what's interesting and when it comes to that and 
whether it be here or in other parts of the world, but when it comes to mental health, it's one, as to your point, many times it's maybe hard to diagnose. It's also dependent on who, who checks on that. And it's almost a place that we barely, barely talk about. Yeah, it's a, it's a very tricky place, but fascinating at the same time. So, but I definitely want to get back to that in a little bit. Um, what's, uh, tell me, what's a typical day for you today when you don't have that many routines? But if you take me through a typical day, uh, what does that look like in terms of getting up in the morning? Do you have any certain routines? Are there any typical readings that you have? I wake up 5 a.m., 5, 5.30 a.m. I usually respond to email from the night before because I, I tend to go to sleep very early, 8.30 p.m., 9 p.m. And like an old man, like my friends would say, I get up, I respond to my emails. I uh, the, the, the first thing I do, in order for me actually to wake up, the first thing I do when I wake up is I have to shower. Then I'm awake. Then I respond to some emails. I, and then I'll always be on the computer for about an hour and I would I usually wait to see what it's designs, what it's, it's work related stuff. Always then every day I go to a chiropractor. Every day if I'm in Chicago, uh, if I'm in New York, sorry, I uh, I do traction, which is so when I had the concussion, what happened is part of my neck has been affected by it, and my neck I have a a curvature, an opposite curvature of my neck. And every day I go to a chiropractor, and we we essentially. We pull my neck back and I do some traction. I get adjusted, but it's an everyday, everyday, everyday process. Uh, it's almost like, you know, somebody who has issues with their teeth to, in order to get back, get them back, you know, to the way they're supposed to be. You put a retainer and then same, same here and you just do it over and over and over again. And you hope that you find a, what they call normal curvature and which usually fixes the, the frequency of headaches, the frequency of migraines, and all that stuff. So that's it. Always starts with health, and then. But usually, I um I always go and have coffee at the same place every day. Like I'll go and have my coffee, whether it's an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, so my day always starts with the New York Times paper copy. I don't do anything electronically. I'm not. I haven't gotten. I'm. I have a lot of gadgets, but I'm not high tech when it comes to reading. I can only read out of like solid. It needs to be a newspaper, a magazine needs to be a magazine, a book needs to, be, there's no Kindle, there's no New York Times on the iPad. So my day starts with my, uh, the New York Times and coffee, you know, I'll read the whole, I can usually, I usually, I'm, I don't read per se. I kind of scan, same thing with books, same thing with contracts, same thing with any documents that I read. So I read the entire paper. What are typically things that interest you? In the times, there's the, the world page is always great. You know, the news of the world is always great for me because there's a portion of Africa, there's a portion of um, of Europe and New York and stuff that's happening around this. It's a, globally, it's a great paper. And uh, the sports section really depends on what's go, what goes on in terms of competition. For example, during the Euros, the Times does a very good coverage of it. You know, yeah. uh, it was good. So, but I don't spend a lot of t- unless it's soccer or like. Some of the basketball stories, good stories, I usually, but um, the business page, I always read like from beginning to the end. So then I um, I would typically always meet uh, somebody for a lunch meeting, whether it's, uh, lately it's been a lot of, uh, I'm part of a couple of boards in, in New York, uh, either being like another board member or uh, 
I'm also uh, sometimes been some of my friends that are like working in the industry in New York, but it's a newscast. Like last week, I have a friend that works for New York Times and had lunch with him. It really depends. It's New York, so I have and I grew up here, so a lot of uh, friends that I've had growing up or family friends that we have, I usually try to meet for lunch, and it's, it's it, it allows me to it gives me an hour or two of like you know decompress a little bit, and then I'll go back and and do some work and. For me, work really depends on the amount of jobs and the amount of projects that I've gone on. You know, what are you working on? So I have a, I have a design firm, and I do a lot of landscape design, and I do a lot of interiors, and I have I'm working on a kitchen and bath company right now, which is based out of Europe. I've uh, I purchased an existing factory, and I'm you know working on a lot of new stuff. I like. Uh, I like having the ability that all my projects only include products that are mine, so I can kind of control it. It's almost like, you know, when you have a restaurant and when you can grow your own veggies, it's almost better. You can control what goes in your food. It's kind of the same thing I'm trying to do with, with spaces where everything, every component, every material that goes into my space is a material that I have either direct input in it in terms of what goes into that material, how it's product, how it's how it's manufactured. And uh, the design firm is that something that you started? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. It's it, I, I started that. I started that five years ago, four years ago as a business. I did a lot of jobs while you were playing. I was playing. I did a lot of spaces. Where, do, where where does that come from? I don't know. I uh, I've always been interested in it. Do you have a design uh, education, or or it was something that you picked up along the way? No, I've, I've picked up along the way. I've taken, um, what I did is I've always had an interest in it. I've done a bunch of places for myself. I've helped friends to their places. And I would still go to all the, whether it was the off season, even when I was in season, I would always go to all the design shows. And I have a lot of friends in the industries. And I'm, it's kind of, when you, when you have an interest in something, usually you tend to be a lot better at it. Yeah. Versus if you just go and just learn it. You know, because you have an interest, so you try to figure out ways to make it work. You go to shows, you talk to designers, you meet. But the fact that I traveled allowed me to meet a lot of people in that industry because I lived in New York first. It's great for design. And then Chicago is not a bad city either in terms of design and interiors and stuff. But then I was in Europe, so in France I got to hang out with a lot of designers, be on a lot, a lot of projects, being in the middle of it, you know, how it's dealt with, the way they... But I only take, I have my style, I have my way of working that's very, very different than most. But I would always take little pieces of the way that everyone works and I just mold it into my own uh, my own style and my own business. It's a, And sorry, what's the company called? I call it Pitch Concepts, just like a soccer pitch. So is it pitchconcepts.com? Yeah, that that's the one thing for me. I like everything. It's like soccer, you know. I enjoy playing. I just don't like everything else that goes around it. Same thing with the business. It's even though it's necessary, I just like doing design. I'm not a big fan of all the social media that goes around it. The website, the the name, and stuff. even to come up with a name. I was with a friend. I remember four years ago. He goes, "What are you gonna call it?" I said, "I don't know." I said, it, "I don't want my name. That's for sure. I already know that." I said, "But it doesn't matter." I just, and, but you gotta come up with a name, you gotta, so usually I let other people do that for me because I'm not, not good at it. I wanna ask a little bit about your um, upbringing. Uh, you're born in Mali. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know much about it, how would you typically describe Mali to begin with? First, the best thing about New York is that 
most people do know where Mali is. New York is just amazing city in that sense where people are very, very familiar with, you know, with geography and different cultures and stuff because they face it. I mean, it's such a big melting pot. But uh, Mali is on the, the west coast of Africa. It's uh, it's landlocked, bordering Ivory Coast, Senegal, uh, Algeria. Very poor country based agriculture. I'm a, I also have, uh, particularly, I, I'm from a uh, very, very, very small village on the border of uh, Mauritania, Senegal, and Mali, right there. What's the village called? Swena. Swena is my village. It's called Swena Samari because. Everyone in my village essentially is a Samara. Maybe to the exception of maybe two or three percent of people that might come to a village because they were workers, they were helping and stuff. But otherwise, we're all Samara. But it's very small. I want to say we have maybe forty to fifty families. Very small. How was your upbringing? Uh, Mali is great. Mali is fantastic. I, I, my home, you know, it's my village. I still go twice a year. But my father worked, uh, you know, that in France. So it was a lot of back and forth, not for my family, but for me. I uh, I struggled a lot as a kid with the whole neurological stuff. So I spent, I basically spent my time in both places. You know, it was, um, you know, sometimes Mali, summer spending a lot of time there. And then when school started, go back to France. But it, you know, when I was there, I dealt with a lot, a lot of, a lot of my neurological symptoms with they were more important um, part of it was um, school system the way the system was it did not it was hard for me to you know to really be part of the system being in a school with a lot of kids was tough being uh, for example as a kid I wanted to sit I always wanted to sit by a window and I would go to school and it would be uh, you know people didn't know what you have and they would say well can sit wherever you want. I want you to sit in the front row, and uh, it would sometimes be a five, be like a five ten minute argument, and, and you get kicked out of class. You know, then you go home, and then you got to fight with your dad, and then because you got kicked out of school, and it's every day. It was a daily, daily, weekly challenge because you go to school and you're fighting with, and you didn't really have a way of explaining that why. Yeah, because at the time it, it was. I just want to sit by the window. That's what I want to do. And professors would say, no, I want you to sit there. But had I been diagnosed early on, okay, he's different, so we need to accommodate him. It would have been easier. The teacher would have known. Every day, it was my days were always headaches, tensions, seizures. And then he had a seizure, and I was back at the hospital for three or four days. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to give him more medicine. Instead of giving two pills of Depakote, now it's going to take three or four. Not knowing why is he having seizures. But now they don't try to figure out why he's having seizures. We're just going to pop medicine. Meanwhile, exactly. Like, that's what they do today with kids. They say, oh, my kid has an attention deficit. Oh, he has ADD here. Give him some Adderall. He'll be okay. Doesn't fix anything. Gives him attention span for a few hours. To go back to Depakote, the, the 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 pill that I took for so many years, it's now it's known as a it's a pill that's very popular nowadays because it's they give it a lot to people that have bipolar mm-hmm. syndromes where when they take it, their moods it calms their mood down a lot. It comes, but it doesn't fix it. 
So what, so for example, when I was taking the pill, what it would do is if I went to class and I said, I want to sit by the window. And if I didn't, now I wouldn't get pissed. That's what the pill would do. I wouldn't get mad. Right. It would, call, it would keep me calm. If I didn't have the pill, I would go in, I would get angry. I might, I might get kicked out of class, but on my way out, I might kick every desk on my way. All the books are evil. So that's what the pill did. But people will look at you and they will say, your parents, teachers say, well, he's much nicer with on the pill. But it doesn't fix the fact that yeah. I'm going to sit by the window. Is that something that you might, or that you see yourself getting kind of more involved with, being having the experience that you had and also having been a professional for so many years, uh, is that anything you're looking to get more involved in, to inspire others or help others? Yeah, yeah. I uh, Obviously, when uh, I've always been, even when I played, and guys who play with me, they'll tell you, I've, I've always been kind of a guy that puts everybody else first, and, and I love helping when I can. And I think for what I went through, what I'm going through, when I've, the way I've lived my life, you know, sets an example, you know, kids, you know, kids or people that have it. I said, well, just because you have something that's seen by other people as a disease or as a deficiency doesn't mean you can't achieve your goals. I, and I'm going to be blunt about this, but there is nothing, nothing, nothing that I've told myself I want to do this and I want to be successful at this particular thing that I've not accomplished. If I can do it, you could do it. What happens is don't let the system make you believe otherwise. Don't let the system make you think you can't go to regular school. Yes, it's going to come with challenges. It's going to come. But you know what? Be you. Realize you have something. Realize you're not neurotypical, that you're different, that your brain functions differently. Doesn't mean you can't succeed in the classroom. Doesn't mean you can't succeed in the in the workforce. Doesn't mean you can't. It's it's going to be tougher. It's going to be more challenging. But you could do it. I did it. Yeah, and I, th- I think what you just said, uh, the, the system, and it's also you know you, l- you look at the educational system, and typically almost everywhere we have like these standardized ways of teaching at all levels of school, from from young up to university, where it's whether it's here or in Europe or anywhere else, it's okay. Here is, you know, the course materials. Here are some books. You need to read that. You need to remember it, and then you need to take a test. And the end of the day, we're just learning how we're taking a test, but we're not taking into consideration the different personalities or the different backgrounds. And but hopefully, and I think we start seeing some some change in that. We start seeing a little bit of innovation in certain pockets of people who have realized that and realized that there is a tremendous value in finding people who don't necessarily have the traditional approach to things or the traditional way of thinking about things. And we start on seeing how we can take advantage of that because there is an upside to that as well where a lot of the geniuses and a lot of the innovation of the world comes from people who haven't had necessarily that traditional way of doing things or looking at things. Absolutely. This, this is spot on. It, this, is what, this is one of the things I say all the time. We live in a society in different systems where people feel like we have to always take the same approach, whether it be to be successful, whether it be to educate somebody. A system works for a group of people, for maybe one person, but it doesn't work 
the same way for everyone. You've yeah. played soccer, I've played soccer. We know coaches are notorious for doing that. They want to deal with every player the same way. That's not how it works. You have guys that you can shout at. They'll respond. You have guys that you have to tap on the shoulder, bring them in the office. That's how they're going to respond. That's how it works when you run a business. There's a guy you can get on the job site. There's a guy you can curse him out in front of everyone. And he has pride. So he's going to take this and he's gonna, that's going to take him to the next level. You have guys, if you act the same way, they're going to crumble. The same thing goes with school. The same thing goes with soccer. The same thing goes with life where there shouldn't be a perfect equation, a perfect science behind the way something should be thought or done, where I am lucky. I, uh, I am very, very lucky, but I've taken a completely different pathway in the way I've done everything. Completely different. I, most people, you stay with your family as a kid, you grow up, you go to school. No. I left my family when I was 14. I was 14 years old when I moved from, uh, I flew from uh, Mali to New York City. That's not typical. How did that come about? Me and my dad didn't get along years of fighting, going back and forth, and not understanding each other. Not Finally, one day I was in Mali, and I had friends that were here in New York. A couple of them have, uh, are still here now. This. They helped me. They were working here already. They had already moved here. They were working here as immigrants. And, you know, I was able to get here legally. And when I got here, I lived with them. I lived on 161st and Grand Concourse in the Bronx, right by Yankee Stadium. I could take you on there. Like, my buddies from Mali are still living in the same apartments. I don't know, 19, 20 of us in a three-bedroom apartment. That's life in New York as an immigrant. What was that impression like the first time you came to this city? Besides the fact that it was cold when I got here, listen, when you're from the places that some of us are from, that's whatever, man. It's you're from a small village. It's one meal a day. We're we're fine. You're you're living in the Bronx, living with twenty people. It's nothing. You can ask guys that are here from, you know, you ask kids that are here that are from the Balkans, kids that are here from some parts of Asia. When you've experienced, when you've seen what it is to live in misery, poor, when you gotta walk twenty minutes to fill up a bucket of water to bring it from a well to bring it to your family, you think when you come to New York City it's hard? That's <laughs> not. When you came, what did you do like at that age? What was your your next steps from there? So I was 15. I was pretty, I would say, gifted in a lot of different areas. In school, especially when it came to linguistics, when it came to... So I was very good with everything that did not... I was not good with numbers. I was not good at math. I was not good in sciences. But I was very good at reading, whether it's geography, whether it's history, anything that required textbook, everything that was more letters and that had like a more of a memory component to it. But at first, again, I, I struggled, just like every time when I moved, because now it's routine. Language, not being able to communicate with people, drives you crazy, not be able to understand people. I used to have headaches just because I couldn't have a conversation with somebody without having a dictionary or something like that. The first and foremost, the most important thing for me was you need to learn a language. How did you do that? So what I did is I watched a ton of movies, a ton of movies. I mean, not just eight movies in English, subtitles. Every night when I went to sleep, I would put on the radio, I would put on the news. It was just the language all the time, all the time, being around it all the time. 
I realized the more time I spend indoors with the guys from Mali, the less I'm going to be able to accustom myself with the culture and the language. So I, I would go downtown. So I went to school. I, I found a school downtown where it was English as a second language. It was called Liberty High School. I got there and I, not making friends, but you're studying now. Now you have a card to the public library. So I got to go to school, public library, and I would go and play soccer on um, Riverside. The only thing with soccer is, you know, I was from Mali and I was in New York City. The level was not good enough. So the first time I went, I looked at the coach. I looked at the, I think it was like the under 15, and I was I was already pretty big, you know, and I had played soccer in Europe and Africa. And, and the coach says to me, well, what age group do you play for? And I barely spoke English, and I looked at the the, on the U19 team, and I said, these guys. That's who I played with for a little bit. And I was 15, so for, it's me living with the buddies from Mali, and then I was going from school to play soccer, and then you realize, well, now nah, you got to find a job. So you can buy food, and you can get two, so I buy some cleats and stuff. So I worked at the Domino Pizza. <laughs> I used one of the guys in the apartment's papers, and I worked at the Domino Pizza on 116th Street in Lexington there. First thing is you buy a bicycle because you need to have your own bicycle to deliver pizza. And I did that for six months. You know, I would go from, um, in the morning I would go from the house to, and I would take my bicycle because I needed it on the way back up. So I'd take my bicycle, go to high school, go play soccer. And when all the kids went home, I would go to Domino's right away, 6 p.m. And I would deliver pizza until like 10, 11 p.m., depending on on the night, if there was an event, if there was, for example, if it was Super Bowl, you made a lot of money. If there was like a basketball, especially when it was cold out, because people would always, you know. But I was in a tough area where a lot of times I, I would go into projects and I dealt with people that paying. Like, it's life in New York, man. It's just grind, grind, and grinding. You mentioned earlier here when we spoke offline that not too long after you got to New York that you were adopted. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? When I was playing in, in, in Riverside, one day, this guy comes down, bald-headed guy, and he goes, where are you from? I said, Mali. And that guy happened to be Martin Jacobson, who's the coach at MLK. He goes, but why are you playing with the under-19? I said, because. He goes, but you don't look like you're 19. You're small, you're skinny, you're a baby. Fan. And I won't tell him, because then they're going to put me back and play with you 15, which is, I wasn't, I wasn't going to enjoy. So I'm walking to the subway, and he walks with me, and we're talking. And he says, you should come by my school tomorrow. I have a lot of kids from Mali that you... I said, sure, why not? So I went to Kubri the next day. I went to MLK and I'm, you know, Martha Luther King here on the Upper West Side. And wow, now it's a bunch of kids from Mali, from Senegal, from... And everyone is playing soccer. Everyone's downstairs in the office before training, speaking French and stuff. And then I'm... But I'm torn because I'm like, this is great. This is, guys are culturally the same, but I'm like, the biggest challenge has been to learn the language, learn the culture. And if I associate myself with this too much, I might lose what I've been doing. A few weeks go by and Martin Jacobson gets me, transfers me to MLK. But now I go to school and it's uh, too easy academically. i make a long story short. So then I started playing with a club where all these kids were playing. And one of the kids' parents was trying to figure it out. You're here, but you don't have everyone else, the kids from Africa, everyone had family here and stuff. And you realize, well, this one's not a family. Why are you working in the Domino's? I some, one time made a mistake saying I was working in the Domino's. And 
that parent particularly interested in me. She goes, I gotta help you. I gotta, we gotta help you. We gotta put you in a good school system. We gotta figure out where you live. And I said, no, I live. It's great. It's fine. They, you know, I think they, you know, they got to find out he's young. He's living with a bunch of people and he's working. He's playing soccer. And he realized this was too much. So, you know, that the parent who's now my adoptive father. They say, okay, number one, we got to get him to be legal because now he lives here and he doesn't have any documents. He's undocumented. He doesn't have family. It was almost like we got to do an extreme makeover of it. You know, <laughs> we have this kid and he has he has this brain and he has this socket. How do we help him? And within a week, they somehow school boom figured it out. You know, uh, I was getting tutoring after school. Uh, my medical taking me to doctors to figure out what's going on with him neurologically. Depakot really works. Does he need to still be taking it? Soccer. Then, I've never talked about this, the first one, September 11th. You know, September 11th happens. I don't know what's going on. You know, I just moved to America because it was a safe place. For me, it was heaven. People were great. I'm looking at September 11th. I'm like, well, this is the place that I came to. For me, this place was like heaven. This is... My life is going to change. My life is starting to change. And all of a sudden now, Muslims, terrorists, my faith, my religion, have come here and bombed these two buildings. Now I have this mental challenge that I can't overcome. I spend days, I wouldn't go to, I would just watch TV and be like, what? And um, my adopted father says to me, we were talking one time, he says, listen, that type of things happens. It could have happened anywhere. And a lot of the kids that I was playing soccer with had just gone to college that summer. So no one was here who I can talk to about this. I had two friends from Mali who had just graduated high school, who had gone to St. Lawrence University, upstate New York. My dad said that. And when this happened, I said, I, I got to go back to, my, to Mali. Ah, this is crazy. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, uh, there's two kids from Mali here. Go upstate, go see him, get out of Because New York was a punk at the time. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it was like, it almost felt like a war zone, you know, like it was sad and, and, and everyone was on edge. And But anyways, I went upstate New York to see my friends. It was September 20th, 2001. Stayed there, 21st, 22nd, 23rd. I take Greyhound to come back to New York City because I had to start school as I'm boarding the bus. Immigration. Papers? No. ID? No. Passport? No. School ID. The guy verifies me because, okay, we got to go to the police station. Take me to police station in St. Lawrence University. Don't say anything. An hour goes by. FBI. Take me to Buffalo in a car. Go to Buffalo. They uh, ask you questions. Where are you from? Where have you been here? And I call my adoptive dad. And now he's like freaking out. It's like, I. this was my idea. I thought it was a good idea. And now is So now he's activating what we could do here. And I'm going to jail, man. Juvenile. And at the time, a lot of the, the, the facilities in, uh, on the East Coast were, were full, you know, when it came to juvenile immigration, because they don't put you in jail like they would put the inmates. So they flew me to Georgia. I was incarcerated, you know, when I was 16 years old at a facility in Georgia. You know, first day tough, second day tough, because I was used to now again. I'm used to being with my adoptive dad. I'm used to playing soccer. Now your routine is disrupted. I got to this facility. It was a uh, middle of Georgia, you know, uh, not cops, but they were like, you know, security. You couldn't leave the place. But they had a field. They had school. They had food. Most people, for them, would be tough because now they're incarcerated. But 
My routine wasn't disrupted. The morning I had breakfast. They allowed me to go play soccer. I was able to pick the subjects that I wanted to study. It didn't bother me. I could stay there. You know, even yeah, you look back and like, man, I was in jail. I was incarcerated. For how long? I want to say between five and six weeks. But it was tough because all the kids that were the Asians, kids from Liberia, Sierra Leone, a lot of them had fl- fled uh, whether it was war or so they had all fled and they were all kids. Some of them had been there three years. Yeah, two years, three years. Some guys would tell me, Baki, some kids have been here for a year and then they've, dis- they've agreed to get deported. When I first got there, they asked me if I want to get deported. I said, there's no chance. It's just, I die here before I get deported back, you know, because here now, but guess what happened when I was there? I never had a headache. Never had, because I was able to do the things I want to do. Subjects in school, what I want to do. I could pick to sit by the window if I wanted to. So even though I was incarcerated, I had freedom. It was easy, but if I, obviously my adaptive dad here was, I got to figure it out, I got to get him out of there. So we'll see if we should keep, can keep this in the... But I got a, you know, presidential pardon. How? I don't know. My dad, I think, had called somebody who knew me out of there. And one day, you know, one day like this in the morning, two guys show up, black suits, and taking me back to New York. Just like that. Never, ever have I asked the question, how did I get out of there? It, it worked. My, I thought about it. But for me, it was irrelevant. So now I came back, and my dad is... Now it's okay. Now I gotta. Now I felt like I really gotta protect you. You know, so he made sure every component of my day, my dad knew where I was, where I was going, and stuff. So, changed schools. Was out of MLK. Homeschooled. Where? In the office. My dad's office. Hedge fund. He was uh, in the hedge fund business, finance, finance business. So you were homeschooled for a few years. Was that leading up to uh, to university then? No, I was homeschooled ninth and tenth grade. Okay, and after that, which what set me back one year because I had already done ninth grade at MLK, but then I well, I did ninth and tenth grade homeschool, and then eleventh and twelfth grade I went to LaSalle Academy. You know, and here I, in Manhattan, right? Manhattan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Homeschool Manhattan, Manhattan, and we had you and I have the particularity we had. The same coach at the same time at one point. But yeah, you know, and we're talking about Dave Mazur and I've, I've brought up Dave in terms of culture. So I had the physical tools, technical tools to play soccer. But Dave Mazur has instilled in me the one component that made me, ultimately made me a professional soccer player. And just, uh, sorry to interrupt, just as a, as a side note, as we refer to Dave Mazur, he is the head coach for St. John's University here in New York. Yes. And, uh, and he was coaching you at, uh, what was the team called Red again? Storm Errors. I came in and Dave, and I was already, my level was above the kids my age. And they was like, you could be as, you could be 10 times better on the field. You could be more technical. But you know what? On top of that, I'm going to make you work that much harder. And because it was, he worked on all my fitness uh, physical attributes, you know, I bolt up a little bit. I was fast and I jump higher. And there's a lot of things. And one thing people didn't know, and that's because of the, for years, because I had so many headaches, I dealt with so many headaches as a kid, is that 
I never wanted to hit the ball. So I played the game for a long time where on corner kicks, I would shy away from the ball. Or in my youth, I was big enough and good enough technically where the ball would come in the air and I would shift my body and I'll take it down my chest, take it down. I would refuse to hit the ball, but then I remember Dave would get so mad and he would be like, you know, he would just yell, hit the ball, hit the ball. I mean, he would scream on top of his lungs. <laughs> my mom to this day, she still says, hit the ball. Let me ask you this then. So you were at the La Salle Academy. You were playing with the, with the Red Storm as well. But you ended up at University of Virginia and not St. John's. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people, you know, when I, when I told Dave I was going to Virginia, he never, never held it against me or anything like that. And there's part of Dave that you and I know that nobody out there knows. And Dave has never pressured me into going to St. John's. He's one that asked, would you consider St. John's? And he realized it meant maybe because my academic level was fairly high and or because he knew that dad was wanted me to go to. Yes, dad, back then he would say, I don't know, I want him to go to Harvard. Good thing, you know, I, I got that off my back early because I committed very, very early to the University of Virginia. 2007, you were drafted and you ended up at uh, Chicago Fire. Yeah. Challenge, challenge, because I, uh, my obviously, maybe I should have listened to him back then, but I, the challenge was my, my dad, my dad looked at me more as a, as a student more than an athlete, which I was. Honestly, I think I was, if I put my head to it, I was a much better student than I was an athlete. And I think George Gelnovich also understood. Maybe he's making a mistake, but my dad was not happy. It was tough, 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 because after all I've went through, all of academically, how much I wanted to accomplish as a kid, learn the language and stuff. For him to see me leave early was like, and he said to me one day, he goes, if you're leaving for the NFL, making five million bucks the first year, no problem. I know it, it's okay. But you're leaving for $120,000. That's, that's less than your scholarship. And for him being a New Yorker in that business, it was nothing. And he, he says, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's not a lot of money. So challenge for a year because me and my this is my my adoptive father was this guy was my best friend and now i can subconsciously he's he's, he's not happy he's pissed. but i'm getting through you know me and my father did not really speak when he was back home but me and my mother were so close we, i'd never i didn't go back home a lot never actually called my mom one time and i said to her you know want to go play pro and stuff and she said you got to do what your heart tells you i'll pray for you and i want you to do and there's something in in in, in arabic that's called a duha. Duha is when somebody prays for you to succeed in something. My mom said, I'm going to do a duha for you. Make sure you do. What is that that you want to do? Is this your biological mother? Biological mother. Yeah. I hadn't been home. And I just got to make duha for you. But if you do go pro, I want you to come see me. This was the first time I went back and I went to see my mom and my family. My mom was a Muslim lady, you know, very, with a Quran live by the Muslim, uh, by the book, by the Quran. And she went to France for four days, I think. Came back and was getting ready for the combine and all that stuff. And crazy, I hadn't seen my mom in years and then saw her right before for four or five days. And then I go back to, I think I went to the combine and then draft. Then two weeks before camp, my mom passed. You know? 
And I'll tell you this one thing about Asperger's where, and again, you see things differently. For me, it's very easy. To, I, I see things from a different light is when most people, somebody passes away and they get down on themselves and it's like, it's tough because it's sad. You know, for me, I look at it very different. It's like, you know what? The person is gone. You got to move on with life. Sometimes it's tough because people think, well, they think you don't care or they think you're nonchalant, but that's not it. Is you looking at it from a different angle. My angle is, well, that person is gone. I can sit there and cry. I can, that person is not coming back. That's reality. That's why sometimes there's this thing about people say, well, Asperger's don't have, or people with autism, they have no feelings. They have no, they're awkward. But I used it as fuel, saying, you know what? I'm here maybe because my mom made duha for me. And I, uh, oh, so, Played soccer in Chicago, and slowly things. First, I was frustrated because Chicago was an older team, like a lot of older players. You know, the if you remember, it was C.J. Browns, the Chris Armas, the Logan Paul. Oh no, I was still young, but it was a lot of older guys that had been around for a long time. And then I'm like, "You're training, you're like man, I just want to play. I can't even get a sniff." How how did you experience the level? Um, Chicago at the time was fantastic because. Chicago was good. The level MLS was had gone better, but it was um and it's a tough one because I, I'm having a hard time. We're talking me and a buddy were talking about this recently. It was like, was it harder back then and now? And it's it's a tough debate. Because back then you didn't have as many teams. The talent now is diluted a little bit because you gotta fill in all these rosters from all these teams. So there's more opportunities. Back then, my Chicago team Two of us stayed from the guys that got drafted. A guy got drafted and sometimes teams, I don't know if you remember, no one would make it to the team. And if you did, you made $12,000. So some guys didn't even want to go to the league. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because actually Aleko, who I spoke with here earlier as well, he mentioned the same thing, that it was pure teams and it was only the very, very top uh, that would make it in. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough debate. In terms of football, the level is better obviously, because kids now that are coming up, the coaching, technically it's better. But was it be- was it easier to make it? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, there's, I, would, I would say there's a lot of guys that are in the league today, not to knock them, that, well, wouldn't be in the league because there was fewer teams, there was fewer spots available. And a lot of these kids, a lot of the guys that were good enough would look at it and like, well, I'm not playing for $12,000. Because you had, a, there's a lot of, lot of kids that were talented at times who refused to go to major soccer and stopped playing soccer because, you know what? We all go to school and now there's the real world. We might love playing soccer as a sport, but it's a job. And if you're, it, people go different paths. There's a, I think there's a lot, a lot of guys back then that could have went pro, but didn't. So you're in Chicago. And wh- when was the point that you actually got a spot on the team? Because you had a pretty rapid rise there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember it was against Salt Lake. We had played two games, uh, including a midweek game, and and I remember a, a week before Craig Reynolds, who was the was an assistant coach, but dealt with a lot of the young guys, said to me, "Baki, you know, you've been doing really well. Been talking. I think you're gonna get some minutes soon." So mentally, I had like prepared myself. They might. Sure enough, a week later, I came on against Salt Lake, and then I started the next game. I think it was under Dave Sarikin, but they brought me in as a center back. And when I came in, they said, okay, we want you to play as a holding. That first year, they wanted me to fulfill this, 
defensive midfielder role, which I had done in my youth. And that's where I wanted to play. And after that, I played, played again. But then the coach got fired. The FC Hurricane got fired, and Juan Carlos Osorio came on. Fantastic coach. Fantastic. He's, uh, Juan Carlos was the coach of Mexico recently. But before Carlos, sorry, Juan Carlos came, Dennis Hamlet took the team as an interim coach. He only did two games. And Dennis actually played me in those two games. Uh, Dennis and I, even uh, as a youth, coming to Chicago, he kept me. He kept me. I think Dennis was maybe the main. Dennis has been the one that was following me when I was at UVA because he follows the college ranks. And he was very good to me as a, when I came and I wasn't playing. was always positive. But he, it was like, Dave, he pushed me beyond, you know. When Dennis took the interim job, he played me the two games that he was on the bench for. And we actually did well. But then, because Dennis had played me, when Juan Carlos came, he started with the same team again. Because he had one day to prepare, because I'm just going to play with the same team that played a week before. Played, and Juan Carlos kept me in the lineup. And which was uh, which was great, because now you have a coach that comes with a different mentality, who had no problem benching the Chris Armises. He had no problem benching the... And Chris Armises was good, but he was injured. But he had no problem benching guys like Logan Paz, who, you know, guys that had been, you know, foreign, a lot of foreign coaches, they don't look at seniority or this guy's been in the club for so many years there's no such things the best guys are going to play and that's it now it's changed but the, back then the landscape was all seniority respect and all that stuff you know that's why a lot of young guys weren't playing at the time so yeah i, I played a little bit and then um september comes around boom i lose my my biological brother and molly uh he had an accident on a motorcycle so now although i i uh you, you move on, you realize, you go, man, within six months, I lost my mother and now my brother. What is going on? Now you're like, I've never lost a friend or anyone close to me. Now all of a sudden, I've, lose, I've lost two of them. Even though, you know, I was, wasn't was so, so close to my family. I, mean, I, I was close to my mother and this was still my brother. And you're like, what's going on? Your mind just spins and there's no way I could have played again this season. I was so mentally just off. Soccer was on the field. I wasn't the same player in life. I wasn't the same person. I, would, I was always frustrated, a lot of question mark, a lot of headaches, a lot of uh, difficult. So, you know, when the season, I, I don't think I played after that. I might have played once, but I wasn't playing well. I was, I was, was done, essentially. And when Carlos left, came to New York and played the next year under Dennis as a center back now. And things went well. Played, things were good. I think I had very good season. And then I, um, I decided the following year. Is this around the time when some of the discussions about the national team started? I went through a mental challenge for a while. Where I, for me, I was American. I lived here. I grew up here. My dad was American, and I, I this was my country. But then you face the challenge that a lot of us who have dual citizenship, you know, deal with. And it was, what do I do? I wait at the time, you know, there was a lot of conversation. U.S. Soccer Federation, Bob Bradley was the coach. Dennis was helping me, trying to figure out, can we expedite the process? Can we? And finally, I, I opted. I said, I'm just going to play for Mali. I, and a lot of it had to do with the fact I looked at it from a different angle. Like I said, it has nothing to do with nationality. Or, it was just an opportunity, not only for me to reconnect with a country that I was not familiar with anymore, but I also looked at it as I was playing soccer, and the way soccer was, they thought me quickly, 
It was a business. I looked at it as a business decision. People today can tell you anything they want about Major League Soccer, how it's exposed worldwide. It's not. There's no coach out there that's watching Major League Soccer. If somebody thinks that, that's not what's going on in the world right now. There's no coach that's like, okay, we're looking for a center back. Let's look at some Major League Soccer. That's not the market that the target. It's South America. It's Africa. And I realize you go play for your national team, you're going to have opportunities to play at the highest level. And at the time, my national team was Canute, Sevilla, Keita, Barcelona, Sissoko, Juventus, Jamutene, Roma. So it was all guys playing for big-time clubs. Guys playing for big-time clubs, you know what it means? It means older coaches are watching those games. I decided to play for Mali. First game, ton of scouts. Some offers are starting to come in. I'm starting to hear. It was very simple. Was Who did you play in first game? I played against Burkina in France. It was a friendly game. It went very well. Now I was playing with guys that were, I mean, playing for big clubs, guys that are watching the Champions League all the time. And I'm training. First day, you're like anxious. You're like, oh, can I keep up with those guys, you know? But you switch your mentality. Like I had become comfortable Major League Soccer. It became like a routine thing. Yeah, it became not challenging. Yeah, Dennis challenged me at training every day and stuff, yes. But it became, I loved it and I played hard, but it became where you couldn't push to be at your best because you did not always need to. You weren't playing against the best forward week in and week out. So some games you would play and you're like, well, I didn't have to play my best and have a good game. You're not facing. That's what I said the other day on social media. I said, people say, people got mad when Klinsman said, our best player needs to be in Europe. They do need to be in Europe because you face daily competition. So uh, just take me back there. So what? I, so you are at Chicago. You are gotten your first call ups to the national team, and then first call up did well. Some offers came through. I almost went to Espanyol Barcelona in January. That fell through. Uh, then I played half a season, but I'm playing World Cup qualifiers for Mali. I played Sudan, Ghana. Uh, now there is a strong interest from French teams. A couple of them. A lot of stuff happens behind closed doors where you know they might grow on transfer fee, but you're not going to agree on salary. So you just, it's not worth it. Then some countries that you, you rule out. I rule out Spain right away. I wasn't, that wasn't my style of play. I couldn't play in Spain. It's not for me. You got to be, technically, you got to be better than what I was, technically, whatever it was. It's, it's, it wasn't, that's the thing is, at a person, as, as a player, You got to know what your qualities are. You got to know how good you are. You know, you can't go somewhere and just be, I'm just going to go to Spain and do it. Yes, I would have made a million and a, and a half. But to be on the bench, to not play and play there for a year and then not have a team. And this is something that you, because you were still pretty young, and this is something that you actually realized. Yeah. Because that's quite mature to have that level of understanding. Yeah, but I, again, it goes back also to, the fact that I was playing because I was enjoying it. I wasn't going to go somewhere and not play. I'll tell you today, I, I could have went, at the time when I left Chicago, I could have went to Lorient, Nice, Bordeaux. Bordeaux had just been champion. I was going to come and they told me, well, transfer fee is no problem. We'll take care of that. But you're going to be, you know, you're 20, 
three, there's some upsides, but you're playing in major. There's a lot of things that you're going to come in as a number three. And my head was like, yeah, there was just champions. It was Laurent Blanc was the coach. You know, center back was Sule. Shamak was on that team. Gourcuff, very good team. And I'm thinking, wow. But I'm going to go there and, and I want to play, you know, and I, it wasn't going to be worth it. Yeah, salary would have been great. Bordeaux's a great city, but nah, because then I was going to deal with challenges. I knew it wasn't going to be good for me. So then what happened? That Nice came around. Nice, same problem. They had two center backs that were very good. And then now Boulogne had just gone promoted to League One. And, you know, the owner of Boulogne, the owner of the team, called me personally on my cell phone. We had an hour conversation. I said, that's where I'm going. This is my type of guy, like old school. You're talking salary. He wasn't even worried about the transfer fee, the major soccer. He goes, do you want to come here? He goes, okay, next week you're playing in France. You have a friendly with Mali. Right after the game, showered. I met with him, the coach, the assistant coach, the fitness coach, the team doctor, everyone. That's football. We sat down for 30 minutes. They never asked me a question about soccer. Everything was based on character. There's no reason to talk about soccer. Soccer is easy. You watch a game, you know. It's about character. Family. Where is your family? What do you do in the States? Does he go to school? What do you do for fun? Do you have a girlfriend? That's Europe. That's soccer. Like here, that's not how it works. It's completely different. Here, it's, it's a lot of politics. It's a lot of stuff that goes around it, but they don't try to. There, I kid you not, we never talked about soccer. We never talk about strategy. What do you like to play? What position? It's all character. And Did you have an, an agent with you, or was it just you having this conversation with them? Or? I had my, that conversation with them myself. And I, yeah, basically, you, you bring an agent in the middle, but I'll tell you today, I, no one negotiates numbers for me. I negotiate my own numbers. I, there's no lawyer out there is going to tell me this is how much you're worth. No, 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 no. I'll negotiate behind the table. I'll decide on numbers. You're not going to, whatever you say to me, you're not going to convince me that this is a number because me, I'm looking at you and you're just there to make a commission, which is fine. But that's how, that's how I operate life with everything. I've had that problem with real estate agents where, you know, People try to tell you this is, no, 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 it's okay. We have brains too. So with agents, yeah, I've had them, but that's just a layer, protective layer. And that was it. And I, I did have an agent and I um, made it work. But as you know, with Major League Soccer, it's always, pff, they just make it so difficult. You know, they pay you $100,000 a year and they ask for four, three, four million dollar transfer fee. Like it's, this. Where's the and I tell people where's the rational? Is that what happened around that time yeah, as well? Yeah, there was a couple of offers that they would turn down. They don't listen to it. Or they, they the thing is, what MLS does to European teams sometimes is they turn them off because they think they are. If a European side comes, it's a big club. It's a club that's been around. A club that has money that wants a player. Sit down, have a dialogue. Don't be so arrogant and saying we want five million or we're not going to talk to you. That's what they do. And some teams. Just like, screw it. We'll go to South America. We'll go to Africa. We, this is one. A lot of European teams, you know, they have a list of players they're interested in. If it's not you, they go to the next one. Which is what happens with major like soccer players or not. It's, it's, they ask for so much money. And the salaries are published. These guys are seeing what you're paying the guys. You think then you can go and ask for 5 million bucks for somebody you're paying 75,000? 
How did it go through then in, in the end, the transfer over to They Bologna? wouldn't at first. They wouldn't. And then in the middle of it, I was so f- mentally frustrated at the time. I had a small locker room uh, issue with Dennis. Dennis was a good friend. You know, we, we, Dennis and I were close, you know, we were at good terms. And we were playing in Houston. And I was having an argument with Logan Paws. And Dennis came in to locker room as we were arguing. And he kind of shoved me out of the way, maybe because we had a relationship. So he felt like I can shove him, and I lost my mind, man. I was so pissed. But it was in addition. It was like halftime adrenaline, me being frustrated by this whole transfer thing that's in the air, and him shoving me was like pushed me over the head neurologically. So I just lost my mind, you know. Uh, but then people said there was a locker room fight. They punch each other. I never responded because it's like sometimes there's something that I know. Dennis knows there was never such thing. Then I came back to uh, came back to Chicago, and now I I I said now I want out of here. You know, me and Dennis just got into a fight, locker room things. We got some. We got to clean the air. You know, I I want out. Went on for a while. The team was like, "Well, you're not leaving the league." Was like, "You're not leaving." I said, "Then I I won't train." You know, I'm being defiant now. And I said, I won't train. I said, I, I've had a problem with this coach. I can't get past it. Because I sometimes I, not the time no one knew, but I can't get past certain things. I couldn't get past that fight. And I couldn't get past the fact that there was offers on the table they wouldn't take. You know how hard it was to travel to go to a national team game? It was so long. Now it's going to be closer. French League One, a league that I grew up watching. Financially, a lot more money. Guaranteed for more amount of years. Everything on the table that makes sense. But because a bunch of corporate guys decided otherwise, I wasn't going to lose that fight. So they agreed on transfer fee. Left the next day. I left the next, very next day. I was ready to go. In my mind, either way, if this wasn't resolved, I was, it was done. It was done. I would stop playing. It was done. It was like, it, was, it would have been enough to say, so he could have went either way if the league. And I said it at one time. I told Dennis, I said, Dennis, if I don't leave, I'm telling you today, I'll stop playing. It worked out, you know, league one. But tough when I got there. Man, every guy that's there. And people, the guys here want to tell you that that Major League Soccer is much harder league. It's We're close to Europe. Kids have come to training, 18-year-old, 19-year-old. Perfect touch. The ball never goes out of bounds. You're playing 5v2 before training. If you're in the middle, good luck, man. You're going to run like a dog, you know, because they're not losing the ball. It's bah, bah, bah. You're playing a training when they say one touch. It's At first, when I was dizzy, I mean, it's everything was so crisp, man. The pass, and I wasn't even playing for the top team in France, you know. But the level of the players as a whole, so close. They all have the technical passing abilities. The difference becomes as a group. That's the difference between the top and the bottom, how tactically teams are and how you put all these pieces together. Yeah, but I think you touch on something that's fundamental, which many countries that are kind of behind the top ones miss the mark on, and it is the first touch. You see some of those guys at the top level that they've practiced that touch to perfection. And whether it's the left back or the right back or the right wing, they all have that. So they're, they're not losing bo- uh, any time 
when the ball comes and they're ready for the next decision. I feel like in many other places, and you know, I come from, from Sweden, which is a perfect example of that as well, we are so focused on the physical ability, on the fitness, on everything else, but we don't focus on the fundamental. Yeah, it's and me, I had lost a lot of that. And I was very lucky before I left for Europe at Cuauhtémoc Blanco on my team. And at Chris Rolf. Chris Rolf is one of my favorite teammates I've had. Chris Rolf is technically very gifted. I mean, you would watch Chris Rolf actually. I was amazed. I would watch, I used to sit there, anyone can, and I would watch Chris Rolf do finishing. I had never seen an American kid with such a touch, striking abilities. But this was a kid, you know what? He learned it in his backyard. He learned it on the street. Chris Rolf's never played organized soccer. And I would watch him. I would always be, and I would ask sometimes, I would say, Chris, hey, how do you take a touch like this? How do you take a touch? How do you strike the ball like this? And slowly, he said, this is what you do. And they used to strike the balls with Chris Rolf and stuff. But Quao looked at it from a different angle. Quao must have called, Quautemo Blanco, by the way, favorite teammate I've had whole career. Him and, I mean, I, him, Chris Rolf, and Simon are my good friends. And, but Quao, he realized, okay, he would tell me, he goes, Baki, MLS might be easy for you, but I, need, I want you to go to the next level. Because your touch works here. Because you take a bad step, you're physical. Because you need to perfect certain aspects of your game. You can ask the guys that play in Chicago at the time. I used to be on the field with Quao. Quao would set up in the gym a little. He goes, one touch in the box. One touch, the ball bounce. One touch. And slowly, every day, every day. And then when Carlos Osorio, when Carlos Osorio, after training with Tech Young, he would take me on the field. He used to make me come early. I need you to spray better. I need you to use the... Because you got to spray, but I need, I don't need the ball five feet away. I need the ball spot on. You go in the morning. This was before training. You put two goals. I want you to play me the ball. Got to hit the post. Boom, 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 boom. All the time. One day it was Quao. One day it was Osorio. Sometimes it was Chris. The physical tools I had. I can, at training, I used to crush people. You know, I, the standards were high. But the guys that I played with, the standards were higher. I had guys like Chad Barrett. A lot of teammates that I had in Chicago at the time were very, very good for me because they've raised the bar for me. They raised the standard. Baki, you have, and I had Conde. Baki, you play with your right foot all the time. Come on, you got to play with your left foot. Little tips. But now, that's changed. But for me, I was lucky that I was, I always say I was very, very lucky that I was in Chicago when I was in Chicago. What made uh, Watmok Blanco, because I've heard this before, what made him so special Everything. as a teammate? Everything. Give me an example. Somebody who cares, somebody who is passionate, who loves football. Kovtemo didn't play till 42 years old because he wants to make money. He played because he enjoys it. Passion. I have never seen somebody so passionate about soccer. I mean, but it was passion and competitiveness. The guy competed. You have no idea. I asked guys in Chicago, soccer, tennis, he wanted to win. An argument in the locker room, he wanted to win. It's just competitive all the time. But what set him apart from the rest is Kwa was never stressed. He would come to training. Tired, have his coffee. You would think he was tired. You would think he might have been drinking the night before. When he stepped on the field, 
was business. He had this ability to like walk onto the field. It was like somebody turned a switch. You know, he wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the most physical. He, I could, I don't know that if Kwao is ever lost at training, whether it's short-sighted, whether it's soccer, tennis, it's just, but that's, that's, that's a cultural thing. We're there where it's like, you can't just win a game. You got to win. You got to outrun them. You got to cry. It's, you got to win at every level. But that's what, that's what life is because you, a lot of us, it's immigrants, so tough backgrounds is in order to, to go on with life and be successful, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be, it's, it's, it's not win, it's not winning a few battles. It's winning a battle after another, after another, after another. It's the same thing in soccer. You got to win the battle. You got to set yourself apart in high school. You got to win your battles when you go to college. You win your battles when you go into the league. Then you go to Europe, you do the same. Of course, then you, you there's a ceiling where you're, the guys are so much better than it. So. And then what, ha- what happened in, uh, in, in Bologna? So you had a tough start. Well, when I, when I got there, no, because I, you know, they started me right away. I, I started as a center back, played a bunch of games, but then it was, it was the daily expectation of training. And I couldn't keep up at first. My body wasn't trained that way. Every day, compete, it, was, it was game day every day competing but it was all the extra you know here i didn't have to do the extra it was good enough to get by but there now you're like small fish in a big pond you're competing every day so slowly i did playing more games but you know as a center back when i mean my first game was shamak second game is waro then i play national team game i have drogba it's battling every week you know wednesday Saturdays, big players, you know. I, have one, I remember one week I had Waro with PSG, national team game, I have Eto, and then I had a Gignac from Toulouse. It's like dogfight every game, you know. And, but it was good. Boulogne was great, and then a great club, and then small city, and then. But Where in France is Boulogne? All the way up north, small town. But it was good because small town, there's nothing to do. You played soccer, and on weekends, it depends. I went to Brussels one weekend to work with designers and see what they did. And I went to Amsterdam, I went to Bruges, sometimes Paris and London. It was very easy, pop, 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 you know. Great locker room too, which made it easy. Uh, it helped that I spoke the language, I spoke French, but then played her the second year too. Uh, I was the captain of Boulogne and the team went down to second division. Then I did, and, but the owners, you know, when you go from first to second division, there's a big, big financial drop where teams have to get rid of guys and stuff. And me and the owner were very close and said, Baki, I need you to stay here. Nothing changes for you. It's, yeah, in France, the law is, the, the, the rule is, the team gets relegated, you take a 25 or 20% pay cut, but you're, I need you here. I need you here, I, we're going back up. I said, okay. We uh, started the season okay. Uh, made me his captain. And, uh, but we still struggle, man. We lost, players and he did everything he could for the team to we struggle i think back and then in the winter in december we were close to the red zone they got rid of the coach laurent guillot who was was a great friend of mine a good coach so then tough and then we went back up but then we were just close enough that we didn't make it back so then uh in the summer a couple of 
offers to leave to go stay with your friends, but I wasn't digging. I was like, if I stay in France, I want to stay in Boulogne. You know, now I'm comfortable. Boulogne is great, and I'm. But the team slowly lost players, revenues, and stuff. Some guys left, and then uh, I played half the year, and I figured, let's see what comes. You know, let's just play hard. And some Bundesliga sides started uh, showing interest. Time I think I had Frankfurt, Fortuna, Dusseldorf, Ingolstadt, and then and, and the calls were. And Karlsruhe was, so I, I, I'll tell you, I was supposed to go to Dusseldorf. I had agreed in terms, agreed in the transfer fee from Boulogne was, it was going to be a loan because uh, it was going to be a loan deal till the end of the season, I got an option to buy. And everything was agreed with uh, with Dusseldorf. So I, fl- I was in Chicago and I flew to France first to sign documents. And I don't know when I, when I got to France, then Karlsruhe, I meet the owners of Karlsruhe. They come to Boulogne, so we meet them before I sign. I thought my agent, I said, just forget this. This is where I'm going. I'm going to Kaisi. He goes, yeah, I said, it's, even though I can go to Dusseldorf, and this was the same thing. Even though I could go to Dusseldorf and sign a much bigger contract and be in Eins Bundesliga next year, I'm feeling this Karlsruhe thing. So I went to Karlsruhe. Why was that? Just the comfort level, man. You know, you know, I, I was going to play too. I mean, it was a Dusseldorf had barely conceded any goals. They were doing, they were doing really well. And I was like, I'm going to go there and ride the pine, man. You know, up in, even when I was in France, soccer is great. You know, yeah, you're making money. It's, it's good. You're playing against a big crowd. National team is fun. But I had never discovered what football really was till I went to Germany, man. And people will tell you today, people will ask you, uh, the Premier League is great, La Liga is great, yeah, but Bundesliga, best. Why? Yeah, best at uh, every level. The facilities, the, the the way they treat their players, the way they're organized, the fans, the stadiums, at every level of football, Germany is the best league in the world. Maybe not on the field, maybe not. You can argue that Spain is more attractive. You can argue that England is is more physical. Bundesliga might not be, but in terms of football as a whole, as a professional, as a job, it is the best league in the world. I haven't played in England, but I've seen a lot of my friends. I visit a lot of my friends there and stuff. <laughs> Bundesliga is packed stadium, weekend, week out, organized guys that are honest when you sign your contract there is no back and forth for weeks Telling contract takes one hour done boom it's not we're not giving you more than this we're not going to give you less than this it's everything is is calculated that's determined everyone is on time your your food is calculated the, the way you travel there is never a hiccup in anything i have never gone to germany i've had a hiccup with whether it was your immigration documents, whether it was traveling back to the States, whether it was, they make sure that everything you worry about is on the field. Yeah. That's what I tell people. And, and there's some cl- leagues in the world they do, but in Germany, I, at least when I went to Karlsruhe, it might not be the same thing. It makes it so much easier. For, for a guy like me in terms of, I don't like dealing with finding a place. I like the same things with them. And they kind of realized, they said, listen, you want to stay at a suite at the hotel? The whole rest of the season, do it. And I focused on soccer. Best time in my life in football. 
one part that I'd like to touch on a little bit, from what I understand, the structure of, of the contracts and the way you're compensated is slightly different. Can you walk me through a little bit how that's structured there and maybe touch on how it's different uh, from other leagues that you've played in? Yeah, it's uh, it's very different in terms of, uh, as you said, the structure of the contracts. And I'll give you three examples. Major League Soccer, for example, is the numbers are where they are. It's much lower than the average you know, salaries around the world. And you have some performance-based bonuses, I could say, whether it's you're an all-star or your best 11. Usually those are the big bonuses. But reality is those you... It's very subjective, you know. You might be one of the top eleven players in the league very easily, but you know, it, it, that's that's a different debate. But the, the structure of the contract are very different. So in the states, here it's here's your contract, guaranteed money, and a couple of like you know bonuses, whether it's marketing or whatever. That's just a way of making it work in the salary cap. And when you say guaranteed money, that's like that's your core base salary, exactly that you make regardless of. Of yeah, performance or if you play or not. Exactly. Usually you base, you sign a contract and they'll say, okay, uh, this is how much you're going to make as a base and here's marketing money. So yeah, if it's it's if it's $50,000 salary and 50000 marketing, it means one of them is your salary divided by, you know, by monthly 24 payments and the other one could be one lump sum divided by two or whatever. Okay. And, and marketing, does that mean... Like image rights, or, or that, what does that mean? You know, that's what they call it. Okay. That's what Major League Soccer calls it. It's, it's a marketing bonus, but it's really just a bonus. It's like, a, it's a lump sum, and it's... You know, there, are, there are a lot of different reasons behind marketing money in terms of Major League Soccer. Some agents will create a contract that has a higher, a bigger amount in marketing money because they make 20% of that money and 5% of your salary. So the incentive is to get you, because for you as a, some players don't realize this when they sign, especially the younger players, when it's like, okay, well, your contract is going to be $200,000. And you're looking at the big number, $200,000. But then when they divide it and they say, well, it's $100,000 salary and it's $100,000 in marketing money or bonuses. Well, your agent that made you sign this contract knows that on your salary is making 5%. So he's only making... 5,000 of the 100,000 that you're making. However, on the 100,000 dollars that he got you to sign marketing money, now he's making 20%. So now he's making 20,000 20, out of that. So how is it different than in, in Germany, let's say? Or let's, let's I guess, because Germany is also different from other European countries and other leagues. So let's just talk about that for a second and maybe you can just elaborate on that. And Yeah, well, France is very simple. France was, you're signing four years, boom, this is how much you're making. The team bonus is already set. You know, that's done. You might have some performance bonuses, yes. Like if your team stays in the first division, you can make 250,000 euros. But it's very straightforward, very quick. It took me, I think, went back and forth twice when I was dealing, doing my deal with the French team. And it was very simple. I dealt with the owner with using a layer in between. But it was, here's what I want. It was like, this is what we can give you. And then you say, well, can we do this? Yes, bingo, done very simple Germany it's very simple too in terms of um, it has a lot of different layers but there are, what Germans do better than any other league in the world is that all the contracts are, it's, there's a lot of performance in it where it's like 
you're you're going to make a little less than you would in other countries in terms of your base, but very very large bonuses, which is you know ten thousand a point, fifteen thousand a point, twenty thousand a point, and that gives you this incentive of okay, now you have to perform every day because you, you have to play. For example, I'll give you an example. My contract, my my when I was in Karlsruhe was you have to play and you have to start that because they brought me in as a starter and we had to perform. So every day you're going in well. It's not I'm playing to get into the 18, which is, happens here a lot. It's I want to play to be in a starting 11. That's number one. But it can't just be being in a starting 11 and being happy. On top of that, I have to make sure we win. And it makes, that's normal because it's a business and this is your livelihood. That's what you do for a living. So every day, every day, everyone is competing because other guys have different bonuses, whether it's being in the 18 or coming on the field for forwards sometimes where competition now is four steps higher. Every day the guys compete. What is, let's say, the top two or three learnings they take from there that you would like to pass on to young players? Yeah, I mean, two or three, that's... The top. I know there's probably much more than that, but if you have a few things that you can point to and say, you know, here are some things that are really picked from here that every young player should know? It's a good question. I'm trying to think, because I'll give you an example. In Germany, and I'll take, that's the kid I always take an example. Hakan Kalanoglu played with me in Kalsuri, was 16 years old. Now he's with Bayer Leverkusen, and he's top, top player. Here you have kids that, that, whether they're homegrown, whether they're young players, they don't play as much. They sometimes don't get games at all. But they go to training. When training is over, they go back to the locker room. You go to Europe, you see these young kids, they're hitting free kicks for an hour. They're perfecting their game every day, every day. And I used to see a lot more of that, even in MLS, than before. I used to, Chris Rolf used after training, he used to hit the ball for 45 minutes, striking it, working on. Now, you see, when training is over, everyone's back in the locker room. Why do you think that is? It's a cultural thing. It's it's because here, what happens when if you're a young player and you're playing week in and week out, even if you're a guy that plays, no one makes you feel like you. You don't need to do the extra because you're good enough. You're gonna get. You know you're gonna get on the field regardless of doing the extra. And that's why young. That's why young players here they plateau after a while. Or I've seen it. I've been part of locker rooms where Frank Lopez was notorious for doing this. Young players after training would go out there and hit some balls and do extra stuff. And they're like, oh, no, we don't want you out there. It's too hot. Oh, it's, what do you mean? I haven't played in a, these were guys that hadn't played in a month. And they would say, well, the guy hasn't played in a month. If he wants to strike balls for an hour because he's going to get better, let him. But no, like here they want to, they just mismanage it. It's like they want to control certain aspect of the game of training. Like they don't do it the right way. It, how are you going to stop a young player who's striking balls even for an hour, three days before a game? You haven't played him in a month. But then they'll find this excuse and say, well, we might play you this weekend. We, they, they, that's, how, that's what Heiner's development here is, the way they, they, we deal with certain situations. Like, oh, be careful, it's too hot. Be careful, you can get injured. And, and they don't understand. This is how you get better. This is the extra stuff. What are some of the coaches here that you would say that, that are doing a good job, that are understanding this, and that perhaps uh, we should follow a bit more? I'll give you the best example. In Major League Soccer is Philly. 
I was in Germany, and Jimmy Curtin at the time was running some of the teams in the academy. And I remember Jimmy used to travel. The guys in Philly would allow him to travel to Europe, watch. I think he watched uh, some teams in the Bundesliga, something in France, some things here. How they work, how do they deal with the academy kids? How is it structured? You know, what are the coaches doing? What's working for the kids? And they're doing a fantastic job there. And Jimmy got, was there, and he would look at the youth, and he would look at the first team and see how these young players in the first team are being handled. Because it's a system as a whole. You, if you're an academy coach, you can't just go to the academy, watch their training, and just go back and say, oh, I saw their training session, I'm going to do the same. You got to figure out what the liaison between the youth and the pros, how they're dealt with, what they're doing. And I think Jimmy did a great job. FC Dallas, fantastic academy. Because, I mean, now they have a different system where Oscar Pere, and he has it down to a T where his teams are doing so well. So when I was with Dallas, the U15, U17, they always, at training, we always had 10 to 15 of those guys. They would be mannequins, or they would be the wall, or they would be the guys who, when defenders play on one side, attacking players play on one side, they'll be the opposing team. And they will come in waves and waves and waves. Not only we're facing guys that are quick, that are fast, and that are like, they're going to come one after another, but these kids are also seeing what it's like to be at the professional level. They know what the standard's at. You can take some of these kids with FC Dallas, and I kid you not, if you put them with the first team in a game because you need them, they'll know the system because they're around it all the time. I want to shift gears uh, a little bit. We've touched on this uh, throughout the conversation. I'm very curious about the uh, Mali national team. Uh, you have uh, 12 caps between uh, a couple of years from like 2009. First, I want to ask you about the locker room. What are some aspects that you can point out to that are unique or that stuck with you from from that time well first to go back to locker rooms in general at the youth level college level pro level throughout the world is one aspect that's always the same is locker rooms are always not divided but in all locker rooms you have like clicks almost because there's some the hispanics it's not it's a comfort the Hispanic kids, they always hang out together. They speak the same language, have the same culture, they relate. You have the American kids, that, and it's always like that. And we have that in our national team. That's what pe- people look at and say, well, it's not a team. Like here, they, sometimes here, that's, it happens against here where like people try to break that, where it's like we did an American kid with a Hispanic kid in the room. Because what are you trying to do? It's These kids on game days, they might listen to Hispanic music before the games loud in the room because that's what they do that's what gets them ready for games why would you take somebody as comfort zone because you feel like it needs to be black and white together that's not how it works in national team in mali is the same way mali born players french born players mali born players play in two categories bombara soninke two different ethnicities so all locker rooms have different Groups within. When I was in Montreal, you had the French kids, you had the kids from Quebec, and you had the American kids. But that's doesn't mean we can't play as a team. That's just culture. That's how it works. Mali national team. One thing that, that Mali is Muslim country. Everyone in Malacca was Muslim, and there was this thing that's faith. And you would play a game, and 
you would pray just protect us by so we don't get injured and all that stuff but you would play and you would play the game hard for different reasons because now there's a difference when you play for clubs i go back to it's business you're playing it's it's a it's your livelihood it's your paycheck it's your job national team is different you're playing for a flag you're playing for a name behind your back and we have families that are from different regions I, my regions where i'm from in mali by suena over there there's never been a soccer player never ever there's nobody comes from that region so you're the one person you almost make that region alive again there's something to cheer for some guys in my village they never watch soccer there's no reason But then now you have a kid that's Soninke that's from the region. So not only the people from Mali, my region, you have people from Senegal that's still my region, Mauritanians from my region. They're excited. Everyone's watching the game now. Our kid is playing. It's not like like here where your family can say our kid is playing. There you're the kid of the village, you're the kid of that region. It's completely different. That's It's not the same. And when you play, it's here. It's like, okay, yeah, you hear people say, I play for my family and stuff like that. But then now you're playing for a whole village. You're representing a village, villages, a bunch of villages, a region. And you're giving kids in your village hope because kids are looking at this like, oh, my God. But Pagi is from our village. And for them, for years, they see kids from the big cities being part of national team. And it's almost, there's no hope. We're farmers. We do agriculture. And we're always going to be farmers. But wait, Park is from the village and is able to, was able to, to represent the national. We're watching him on TV. Some of these kids, they might have never seen a TV. But now it's like, oh, he's in the TV. He is inside the TV, you know? And every time you, the extra motivation, but it's motivation, there's pressure too. But it's good pressure, good motivations. But I remember, for me, it was, even when I played, what's tough is when you're doing it as a business, you're always looking forward to the national team games. And some coach would, there's some coaches that have come out in Europe and said, they don't like playing guys who are leaving for national team because those guys are already focused on the national team games. It's the same as when your club plays, uh, some players say that when you, your team plays a league game on a Sunday and Wednesday they got to play a Champions League game. You overlook that league game. That's natural. You play for your club. You know next week you got a African National Cup qualifier, World Cup qualifier. You don't want to get injured. You don't want to get too. It's subconsciously. After the game, you're ready to pack your bags. You want to go national team. Now you're back in your country. You're back with national team teammates. And now you're representing something different. And anyone would tell you. It's like it's. there's no contract involved. There's no... Yes, when you go to Africa, there's some stuff involved at a federation level. But the guys are corrupted. The guys are there for different reasons. But in terms of football, that doesn't change. Now, everyone wants to play. It's not because they can make that financial incentive or that financial reward. It's because the feeling, is it, it, it's hard to explain. It's completely, completely different. It's a different ball game. So you can ask, even the, the American kids who are playing MLS games every day. When they're done the jersey, U.S. national jersey, it's completely different. My dad would never watch an MLS game, for example. But when the U.S. national team plays, it's different because now these are guys that represent our country. It's not a business who's playing against another business. This is our, it's our flag. They're playing for the flag. It's different. That's where people don't realize sometimes where soccer at national team level and at a club level is completely different. 
you played in, in World Cup qualifiers and uh, you also played in the African Cup of Nations. How was that? It's amazing and it's also very, it's difficult. Uh, pressure. A lot of pressure in terms of you. There's pressure from your parents, from your family, from the country. And you put pressure on yourself to do well as well. People don't realize the African continent, it's very, very difficult. You know, it's not like, you know, you're playing in Africa and it's not like you, some of these things, it's, it's tough. You Winning here, you're playing in CONCACAF, you'll go win in Jamaica. You can win in Trinidad. You can win in Guatemala. In Mali, you can go and play, you can go and play in Sudan. You'll see how hard it is to win. Go play in Rwanda, any of these smaller, you know, nations. Eritrea and some it's some of these countries, it is so hard to play away there. You know, whether it's adversity, refing and stuff. It's tough, man, but it's it's fun. And the cup that you played in, the African Cup was in was the one in Angola. Angola. It was uh and Angola being one of the poorest and one of the most torn countries on, on the continent essentially. Angola is it's known for for us, it's great. You also see a different side of Africa that you would never see if you didn't play soccer. Angola is, you know, it's, it's known as the main resource is diamonds. So it was torn by, you know, some civil war for years and fights over diamonds, of course. Uh, but yeah, there was a country who this was their first, since like all the civil war and all that stuff that they've had, it was the first big event. They built all these amazing stadiums in different cities and our first game happened to be against the host nations, against Angola. I don't know if you remember, it was a, for me, it's the most fantastic game I've ever been part of. We're losing 4-0, two PKs against us with 10 minutes left. And we came back 4-4, last minute. Best, best, best game I've been part of. But for weeks after that game, I was like, did this really happen? The feeling, and you know this from playing soccer, there's certain feelings you can never, never replicate. This feeling of 4-0 four, four to 4-4, four, four, you know, you can't describe it. There's nothing, and I know this today, nothing can happen to me in my life where I would have that feeling again. But that's what, it's the beautiful game. There's some things that happen in a beautiful game that doesn't happen in any other sport. In, in Africa, it's, but there's some things that are tough. People don't realize, you know, adversity Go and play an away game in, in Togo, in, in Benin. I played a game in Benin. It was a World Cup qualifier where at the end of the game, you have the fans that are angry because you're winning and they're running on the field with, and they're punching players. They're hitting players. That's FIFA sanctioned game. This is what happens in the region. But you know, there's this saying, you say, this is Africa. Guys would tell you, hey, this is Africa. That's what happens. When you sign up to play for this national team, it's the thing you're expecting. You're expecting that the guy from the Federation might lose two, three passports. You're expecting that some of the, the hotels we go to might not have AC. You're expecting to connect three or four times in an airplane. You know, this that's just that's Africa. That's what happens. But that's ultimately it's it's football. At the end, the football is just it's beautiful, it's great, it's 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 fun. And How'd you do in that tournament in the African Cup? You know, we lost. We had a, this was weird. It was the, I think FIFA might have changed the rules after that. It was a three, it was a three-way tie. We're tight, tight, tight. Us, Algeria, and Angola. And 
goal for was the same. The goal against were the same. So it was uh, so that we lost on a three-way tie somehow. Um, but it was because at the time, the CAF, the African Federation, what they had done is they hadn't changed the rule yet. So we played the first game. Then the second game was afterwards. And they knew if they tied the game, they would both go through. So they just, they never played. They passed the ball around the back and they, so we got knocked out. And I, um, obviously I was, I was always very out, outspoken, obviously. And even when it came to the national team, and as you know, this is life in general. People don't like it. You, you don't speak. You can't speak. In Africa, a lot of things happen at the federation level. So even though I was young and I was new on the national team, I think people, I spoke all three languages, French, Soninke, and, and, and Bambara, and I was also a big player in the locker room in terms of being outspoken and saying things the way they were. And you have that problem you have in Africa all the time when it comes to finances, bonuses, and stuff, where it's, it gets screwed up, or it, it gets, and I spoke out against it with the members of the federation. We had a meeting, and it was me, Kante, and a couple of other players. And I said it, I said Listen, that, that's not what we agree upon. In Africa, there's this thing where there's agreements. It's just agreements, nothing more. I said to him, I said, that's fine. I mean, if you don't, you don't want to pay the guys what they deserve. That That's fine. But that's not what you said. And the guy's like, well, we said, I have it on paper. You know, and but what happens is, what happens around the world everywhere is when you speak out against uh, what's called the authorities, a quote, a lot of times it'll affect you. And that's what they did. Me and Momo Sisoko, strong, strong, strong opinion. And the guy told me behind closed doors, he goes, Baki, I hope you realize you're never going to be part of this team again as long as I'm here. Guy's still there, but I wasn't. Was but, there somebody at the Federation? Yeah, so. vice president, you know. It was about, you know, bonusing being paid out. And he, he was like, well, we don't have the money here. We'll give it to you later. When I knew from the government that the money had come in already. It's like, don't lie to our face, don't. And the worst part is, it was one. It's one thing if the if you know we're from poor countries and we're not playing national team for the money. It's one thing if the country doesn't have money, we'll let it go because the country doesn't have it. But this is money that came in for the federation because we qualify. But a couple of guys, for their own interest, greed, want to keep that. That's not how it works. You know, I think Argentina is having the same problem today. It happens in African competitions all the time. It's this whole thing of like corruption and, 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 and people wanting, being in it for the wrong reason, for personal interest. This is what's affecting us in Africa a little bit today. And this is what, a lot of what's affecting football, this I'm going to different things, a lot of the things that's affecting football today is greed. We see it with FIFA. We see it with an African federation, I saw it. The same thing happens in MLS. It's, it, the, the beautiful game is such a beautiful game, but now it's being tarnished by people who are using it as a an open wallet, as business, as a way of personal satisfaction. And it's 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 hurting the game. We're getting towards the end here. I feel like we probably need like a four-part series. We can we can go on for a few more. But for now, uh, getting towards the end, I want to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't elaborate if, if you want to. Um, the biggest moment in your career? When I retired. The best player you've played with? Ooh. I have a couple, man. 
you can you can say a couple or a few yeah um the one that impressed me the most was chris wolf in terms of a complete different set of skills from an american players you know gifted technical he impressed me i was just impressed by him as a player it's just imp- the things he could do on the field were just impressive so chris wolf is one of them and when simon when simon came to montreal is playing with a guy who was he had been a long time who had seen a player who was way beyond his peers in terms of his reading of the game striking abilities passing abilities right foot left foot his reading everything he did was so incredible i was impressed by him he turned out to be one of my best friends you know and but he's just great simon chris you know canute frederick canute was my so he became my roommate in national team always roommates what the other two my roommates do canute was just fantastic fantastic individual but on the field it was and people don't realize this he was it was like six five or six six but he played in spain for a reason is now it's like almost like a zlatan seeing a, somebody who's so big but technically so clean man i mean it was every first touch was perfect if it was chest the ball would stay right here foot i mean it was it was incredible it was things that you never see here in mls for example and but the one that impressed me the most was all around Cuauhtémoc Blanco. I can talk about Cuau for hours because number one, I love him. He's a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic individual. But man, the guy could play. You look, like the, you look at the guy and he didn't look like anything. I mean, he didn't look like a player. He was a hunchback and he was, he didn't look like he was fit, but he could, he was so good. He can get past you with speed because you look at your feet as soon as you're planted, he would pew, go past you. He will beat you on the dribble. He would, I mean, all around player, he was just a, a winner. He was so good at everything he did. And he was, people don't realize, a great team player. He was there for the team. And that, again, shows you another guy that everyone on the outside hated. And you'd think he was a cheater because he was diving and stuff. But... The guy gets hit the hit of the hit and again. But Kwao, even when I talk about Kwao right now, I have goosebumps, man, because Kwao is just this. Is, for me, he's my, that I can never say enough. When people ask me usually, who is your, your favorite player and teammate? And but as a, if you talk about player, it's Kwao. Best player you played against? You know, I'll give you one that was tough was uh, Ghana. Their team was very good because he was SCN and stuff. Asamoah uh, Gyan. Oh, man. Handful. Tough, tough, tough. And I also had another one. Is Do you remember uh, Gamero? Gamero played for Lorient at the time. It was before he went to PSG when I got to France. And yeah, it and it's in Sevilla now. It was Sevilla, exactly. And that team was Koscielny him and Vyria and these guys had been playing since they were kids you know and they gave me I mean this kid was he used to run the offside line so well and after the game I was like it's, this is when, when you can see you like this guy was just too good for me I mean just yeah Camaro was probably said the one that 
he was very, very, somewhat, I could, I could, he was strong, but I can, physically, I can battle him. You know, it was okay. But Gamera was like, he never even got close because he was fast. He made the right runs. So, yeah. But in Major League Soccer, it's no brainer. It was uh, Henry. No brainer. Hon- Lendon was tough too, but Henry, different level, man. Yeah. This guy is a different level. He, you would see him and all of a sudden he'll be on the other side of the field and he would embarrass you if you want. It wasn't so much tough in terms of like 1v1. It was tough as a team because you never knew. You stepped on him, he might turn and put up a 90, like nothing happened, you know. So Henri was, was good. I've had a couple, yeah. Do you have a favorite team? My team is PSG, yeah, if it was a team. But now I just support the team where my friends play. So I like PSG. But my club is Karlsruhe. Karlsruhe is my club. You get to take a PK in a World Cup final. Two questions. One, how do you hit it? And two, you celebrate by pulling up your shirt and you have a message written underneath. And you know that the whole world is watching. So one, how do you hit it? And two, what does that message say? I hit it lower left corner. Hard, but not with the instep. Hard, but with my uh, the inside of foot. Message. If it was today, I would say, I'm different, but I'm not crazy. How can people get hold of you? Hold of me. Or follow you. I've had the same number for 20 years. <laughs> it's easy to find me. With social media, I'm on and off. Sometimes I'm on, sometimes I'm not. Uh, I'll go through like a whole week and I always tweet and I'll talk about stuff. I go what's, forward. What's your Twitter handle? It's Paki Samar. My Twitter, my Instagram is the same. On social media, it's easy to get, you know, whether it's LinkedIn, but it's always the same. So my name is not like you're going to find 10 of them in the only one. You know? Last two questions. One, uh, do you have anything you would like to recommend? Yes. I recommend every football fan once in their lifetime, they need to go and watch a Bundesliga game. And I also recommend, this is one thing I always recommend everyone, this is anywhere I go around the world, to spend a few days in New York City. Because I think for me, it's, it's, it is the best, I've been everywhere. It is, for me, this is me, best place in the world in terms of seeing people from different religions, different colors, different backgrounds, different cultures, being able to live together in harmony. And this is the one place in the world where you see that. There's, you know this from New York. There's kids from everywhere. You go to a place, there's a couple from international, in different really It doesn't matter. You know. And I think if somebody wants to experience this, there's no better place in the world than New York City. If you can't, come to New York City. Last question. Who do you think I should interview? Two people come to mind. Jimmy Conrad. Is one me and I'll tell you a small story. I've always Jimmy was one of my like idol as like American players because he was always very honest, good player, but just charismatic. Just I would always look at Jimmy. I'm like, man, he's just such a quality, quality, quality guy, you know. And he's honest, and he'll tell you the truth, and he's supportive, and he's just amazing all around guy. Right? Jimmy is for me. He's for me, he sets the bar for 
it goes, he reminds me, so Heath Pierce kind of reminds me of a Jimmy Conrad as, as younger, it's in the same mold. Just good quality guys. Um, Jimmy Conrad is one, or I hope you can get him, it would be great, it's Jerome de Bonten. Fantastic. Bucky, first and foremost, thank you so much, man. I mean, we've spent quite a few hours here. It's an amazing journey you've gone through, and there are a lot of learnings here for people to extract from. So thank you. I uh, I look forward to seeing what's what's next in your life. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really I appreciate it as well, just because this is this is the type of platform where there's no extra, there's no not this is like conversation this is like coffee and soccer like we having a conversation from one person to another without having to worry about hurting somebody's feeling or being pressured about the content being having to edit it because somebody else might not agree this is like a f i think this is great not only for me or for future you know soccer guys who are going to come through here i think this is a great great way of getting like unfiltered you know, messages. This is really, really good. And so thank you very much for reaching out and for having me. Thank you. I, I appreciate that note, really, because that is very much the, the purpose of these conversations, to get to know the person, but also to have a completely unfiltered conversation. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Bucky. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. 